Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 915. Interview number two with Gerard Williams, along with Simon Dunstan, the co-author of Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. Once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring to our airwaves Gerard Williams. Gerard, welcome. Hi, Dave. Nice to be back with you. In our first interview, we covered uh, the networking between Alan Dulles and Martin Borman against the background of powerful corporations and uh, a great deal of economic plunder, uh, artwork, uh, actual gold and uh, monies, and also what could be called perhaps military capital, German military expertise and the personnel who had developed that expertise. We talked about Hitler having escaped as a result of this deal via submarine to Patagonia or Feuerland, as the Germans called it. In terms of setting the background to how such a thoroughly efficient escape could have been put into effect, um, uh, you mentioned a fellow, a General Wilhelm von Fopel and his Iberian Institute, uh, a very important figure, one that most people have never heard of. Who was he and how does he figure into this scenario? Well, um, von Falpel was a um, First World War general. Um, he'd been in Argentina post-First War, um, directing the training of many Argentine um, officers and men in the, um, in the Argentine army. Um, who marched with hoof steps and wore the same helmets that the, uh, or pretty much the same helmets that the Nazis were famous for. Von Fabel was a bit more than a soldier, though. I mean, he ran the intelligence operation in the Spanish-speaking world. So that's everywhere from the Philippines to right the way across the Pacific to Chile and Argentina, and as importantly, Spain itself. Um, one of the things I found fascinating when... Um, when I was shooting Hunting Hitler for the History Channel last year, it was our time in Spain. The infrastructure the Nazis had put into that place was amazing. Um, there was one 200-foot radio mast, which had been knocked down by the time we got to it, but it was still operating in the 1980s, um, and in the 1980s it was still able to send signals as far away as New Zealand, um, immensely powerful um, Siemens transmitter. Um, so to be in contact with Argentina and the various other places they needed to be in contact with, um, the contact was still there, and Spain was a, quote, neutral country. So even after the war, um, Nazis who had not been captured and who were still operating in Germany and Switzerland were able to be in close contact with their cohorts in um, in Argentina. But it wasn't just that. I mean, it was the U-boat bases that the Germans had built in Spain. Again, down to von Faupel and his relationship with Generalissimo Franco. Um, these bases were built in the early 40s during what uh, German submariners, submariners refer to as the happy times, which is when they were slaughtering thousands of our men and um, sending to the bottom of the Atlantic much-needed war material. Um, but the bases on the Canaries could only really have been used to launch an attack on the American mainland, on the USA. I mean, if they could have done it from Spain by sea and um, from Argentina by land, um, it might have caused some real problems, especially if America hadn't been so successful against the Japanese during World War II. So von Falpel is, is key to it. He runs the um, Iberian Institute in Berlin, but he travels a lot and... Um, he travels to Argentina a lot. I mean, he's, he's there discussing, discussing um, the coup that eventually puts Peron into power. Um, he goes there by submarine to help Peron get his, um, get his colonels in place um, and also delivers a large amount of cash at the same time. So, yeah, he's um, a very interesting man. Um, uh, the... Infrastructure in Argentina, we have spoken about that. Uh, Martin Borman makes it to Latin America. Another fellow uh, whom we have spoken about briefly, uh, the head of the Gestapo, SS General Heinrich Müller. Uh, he also supposedly died at the end of the war. When they open his grave, they find three bodies. 
Uh, he is described by Paul Manning in his text, uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, as basically the security coordinator for the Borman Network and the uh, the Minister of the Interior in Exile. Tell us a little bit about Heinrich Mueller and his post-war activities. Well, he and Borman are very close. Um, they become extremely close in the Führerbunker at the end of the war. And Mueller is also somebody that um, Hitler trusts implicitly, Nazi to the core. Um, I had realized that Muller had died, hadn't died rather, and his body was not the right one, just from reading newspaper reports from the time. But what um, amazed me was I managed to get hold of some of the papers of um, Hitler's favorite pilot, um, a one-legged Stuka veteran whose name escapes me at the moment. But I'm, 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 that that uh, uh, Rudel is his name. Yeah, yes, Hans Ulrich Rudel. Right. Um, Hitler's most decorated man in the German Wehrmacht. Uh, the Luftwaffe being part of the Wehrmacht. And, um, of course, Rudel turns up in Argentina post-war. Um, he's a regular scheme partner of President Juan Domingo Perón down in Bariloche, San Carlos de Bariloche, um, and also tries um, and fails to become the leader of a far-right party in Germany post-war, in West Germany post-war. And I think, actually, Martin Bormann puts the kibosh on that. Um, he doesn't want... He doesn't think the nasty, the Nazi brand, the nasty Nazi brand, um, will ever be viable again. Um, the swastika is a completely failed piece of marketing. Jackboots don't work. Um, Hugo Boss uniforms may look very smart, but um, they're not going to work again. And what he has to do, Martin Bormann has to do, is try and distance the new Germany as far as possible away from the Nazi Germany, especially if they're going to become a world power again, um, which it's taken them a while, but they are. So I think that when Rudel arrives in Argentina, he's working closely with quite a few other Nazis and talking about going back and setting up a, a, an effectively Nazi party in Germany again. Um, but I only discovered in reading his private papers that he had the address of General Muller in Cordoba, the city in Argentina. Um, and that's where his operations were being run out of. Um, he'd been given the address and his telephone number um, in case there were problems for him in Argentina. So the network of, of information, the network of contacts, was pretty well established. I mean, it had been established from 41 onwards in, um, in Argentina when they began to think of it seriously as a potential base um, on, the, um, on the hemisphere. But um, it was in 43 that the motor was really started running. Um, and they built everything from hospitals to bunker complexes to um, to everything else there, U-boat landing stages, um, dumps for U-boats, you know, fuel and, and uh, food dumps for U-boats, some of which have been discovered since. Um, so it's not just myth and legend. Um, so, you know, it, they had organized extremely well, and that's what Borman did. He organized extremely well. Um, you know, at the end of the war, I think... Borman has three major things on his mind. Um, he's organizing a bunch of people called Werwolf, Werewolf, um, and they are uh, former German soldiers, Hitler Youth, and things like that, who could cause occupied, the occupying powers in, in Germany huge amounts of trouble. Look at how difficult it was to hold Iraq with an insurgency going on, um, or Afghanistan. And they were based on the same tactics as the Poles used against the Germans, which were very effective, the Polish resistance army, very effective. So he has werewolf in one hand. Um, he then has the former Eastern um, Eastern Front Intelligence General, Galen, Reinhard Galen, um, and all his officers who have incredibly good intelligence on the Soviets, which is becoming more and more important to the Americans. They're seriously worried about the Soviets. And um, Galen also has information about communist and Nazi spies at the heart of Washington. Um, so Werewolf's the, the, the stick, Galen's the carrot. Um, and Bormann is financing this not just with the money that was taken out of, um, out of Germany before it was occupied, but also he's moved the currency um, forging operation um, out of the concentration camp, and it's running... Um, out of Italy. It was called Operation Denhardt. 
it produced fake white five-pound notes. Uh, it's a great film called The Counterfeiters, which does it um, immense justice. Um, there were so many of these fake five-pound notes in circulation around the world at the end of World War II that Britain could not even mention that some of the currency might have been faked. The pound would have collapsed immediately. But more importantly for Bormann, especially at this stage of the, the, the continuing conflict, Operation Bernhardt is producing dollars. And the counterfeit US dollars are looking just like real US dollars. And, of course, Europe is flooded with um, with dollars from the American troops. And the dollars are being used to buy up valuables, including weapons, gems, real estate, and pay their agents across the world. It doesn't even have to tap into his capital. Uh, the activities in Latin America, now, Operation Bernhard, uh was actually, uh, the, the fellow, as I recall, who was in charge of that was Friedrich Schwend. And I'd like to get to, to Reinhard Galen uh, later in the discussion. Uh, it actually had a lot to do with the Vatican rat lines, which we've spoken about on, on my programs for years. Uh, we might want to refresh uh, listeners' memories or introduce new listeners to that concept. But in Latin America, and specifically in Argentina, uh, Borman and Heinrich Mueller were working very closely with the Peron government. There is a person uh, from this uh, group who became something of a pop heroine in the U.S. In the early 80s, there was a musical Evita about Eva, <laughs> about Eva Peron, and she became a great popular figure. And just as Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond novels, uh, figures into uh, the narrative of Grey Wolf, uh, so too Eva Duarte, later Eva Peron or Evita, the champion of the shirtless ones. I, I forget the Spanish uh, word. Right. And she was not actually the selfless, sort of uh, the Mother Teresa of Argentina that we are taught that she was. You write about her activities uh, as a Nazi spy and then what she was doing with Borman Mueller and company. Uh, if you would develop that for us. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Mother Teresa was Mother Teresa either. She was um, a rather dodgy and very dubious woman. But Ava was um, beautiful, charismatic, um, and stood by her man. He wasn't her first man, but he was the top man for her life. Um, but she had been pay of military intelligence, Jim Abwehr, um, since, I think, 1941. Um, when the Nazis get to Argentina, they're welcomed, but they're welcomed at a price. Ava wants to become the most popular woman on, on her continent. Um, and she insists that Borman, before he arrives in Argentina himself, because he's still in Europe at this stage, organizing, um, hands over a great deal of the Nazi treasure to her and to Juan Domingo Perón, her presidential husband. Borman has no choice. He's got nowhere else to go. Everything's been set up in Argentina just for this one thing. There are also close to 100,000 European fascists. That's not just German Nazis. That's Scandinavian Nazis, Croatians, French Nazis, Dutch, Belgians, um, all of whom had you know, large amounts of men fighting on the Nazi side in World War II, and the Norwegians. Um, Berlin at the fall was held by foreign SS divisions, not by German soldiers. Um, and there are 100,000 of these heading down to Latin America uh, with the help of the International Committee for the Red Cross in Switzerland and with the help of the Vatican. Now, I use the Vatican um, quite deliberately and not the Catholic Church because it's the politicians in the Vatican, the Curia, um, their cabinet, who are the ones that think that these... The Nazis aren't aren't bad people as far as the Curia are concerned. They see them as something like Teutonic warriors, um, people who've been fighting the godless regime of communism and at the same time had been killing the Jews, um, who were always at this stage referred to as Christ killers um, and as such would be the enemy of any Christian. Uh, Concepts that we would find difficult, well, me personally, impossible to, uh, to get my head around nowadays. So these are seen as defeated warriors who may be useful in the future. 
Um, and of course, they'd be very useful in the future if they were working with um, a Catholic organization in Latin America, which is overwhelmingly Catholic um, at the time and still is to this day. So we have a situation where Pullman's got all these people. Everything is set up. He's set up nicely in Germany. He's got the Spanish operation working well. Um, and he had Argentina working well, he thought, until Evita says, you're going to have to give us at least a third of the money you took. She uses this to increase Peron's popularity by handing it out to her shirtless friends, by building theme parks, effectively, by giving away holidays, by giving away cash, by... Um, it's all flash. There's no real substance about Evita. But she becomes a saint. I mean, I've been to um, Eva Peron's grave in the cemetery of Recoleta in Buenos Aires. There are fresh flowers on it every day. Um, and you know, lots of fresh flowers on it every day. So Borman has no choice but to hand it over. Um, funny enough, it's probably still in Switzerland. Um, when Peron died... There was lots of rumours about the fact that you know that there was still a huge fortune in in Switzerland, which could only be got at um, by Peron's fingerprints. And I think there's a story I can't remember whether it's actually true or not, so I don't know whether I should tell it. But, but I think somebody severed Peron's hand so that the hand could be taken to uh, Geneva to open the bank account, but I don't think that worked. So um, there's still probably quite a lot of Nazi Party money sitting in the uh, in the vaults in the Swiss banks under the name of Juan, Juan uh, Domingo Perón or his wife, Eva. Uh, one of the things that you mention, and, and this I think is relevant to uh, the operational nature of the Borman Mueller group, is that after basically Eva and uh, Juan Domingo Perón extorted uh, much of the money that uh, Borman and company had secreted in Argentina, uh, Mueller and uh, his security apparatus effected a revenge. Uh, will you describe that for us? Well, there are a number of bankers down there who are um, complicit, as far as the Borman organization is concerned in it, um, and they're shot or knifed or killed. And to get back at Ava Duarte, although by this stage she is dead, um, her brother, Juan Duarte, um, commits suicide in the most unbelievable, impossible way. Um, and he's found with a gun in his hand. Uh, Borman is a man who takes his revenge, and as everybody knows, revenge is a, a meal best eaten cold. So a number of bankers have been complicit in the, um, I think you used the word extortion. Can you extort from thieves? Uh, possibly. But a number of them who've been responsible for the Nazis losing a large chunk of their, their, their stolen fortune um, were murdered, along with the brother of Eva, Eva Peron, Juan Duarte, um, in the most unconvincing suicide that I think anybody's ever seen. Um, so they did get their revenge. And also that sent a very clear message to Juan Perón. It said that, you know, you're not untouchable, any of you. Um, if you mess with us from now on, we'll just replace you. We can afford to. Get off our back. Yep, certainly an unequivocal message. I was fascinated too, uh, Gerard, to read your book. And in the popular musical Evita, the narrator uh, played initially on Broadway by the famous actor uh, Mandy Patinkin uh, is none other than Che Guevara, the former Castro aide. What I did not realize until I read your book was that his father had been an anti-Nazi activist in Argentina. Yeah, very much so. Um, the Che's father would even take the young Che on um, on missions to go in La Falda at the Hotel Eden to go and slash all the tires of the Nazis meeting there and uh, destroy their cars and get into fistfights with um, with Nazis and everything else. Che was brought up under a very um, anti-fascist anti-fascist approach. I also read, although it's not in, in Grey Wolf, that uh, Salvador Allende, uh, the president of Chile, who was deep-sixed in a coup that ultimately brought a lot of these uh, Nazi sympathizers, really uh, Chilean Nazis to power, also had been very active as an anti-fascist in the uh, World War II period. Uh, and one of the reasons that I went to Argentina in the, um, in the first place, Dave, was to do a story about the children of the disappeared, um, during the 1970s, 30,000 Argentines were killed by their own government with the support and help of Henry Kissinger. Um, not personally, but he, um, he 
turned a blind eye and made sure they did it when uh, Congress was out of session, um, mainly. <clears throat> and, of course, a lot of that was done by former Nazis working for the security forces in Argentina as well. But that's why I went out, because many of the children who had been born to these young dissidents, young possibly communists, socialists, whatever, they're definitely anti-fascists, were handed to the fascists to be brought up. So they were brought up by officers who may well have been responsible for their parents' death or judges or um, politicians or whatever. And there were thousands of them. Um, I went to do a documentary called The Children of the Disappeared. Um, and that's what took me to Argentina in the first place. Fascists. Yep. Uh, the... Uh, you mentioned Henry Kissinger very briefly in uh, interviews with John Loftus, who was an author who was in charge of the U.S. Justice Department, uh, branch in charge with belatedly hunting down many of these Nazis. Uh, he discovered that Henry Kissinger himself had been deeply involved with developing some of the post-war uh, Reinhard Galen connected networks in uh, this country. Also, the Argentine Dirty War involved, among other things, the Argentine branch of the propaganda due lodge of Riccio Gelli, who figures into the rat lines and much of this as well. Uh, in Grey Wolf, you and uh, Simon write at some length about Hitler's post-war residence in Patagonia and Adolf Hitler's valley, San Carlos de Bariloche, and the, his presence is really quite well documented in that area. I wonder if you would uh, expound on that for us. Um, when they first arrived, they lived just outside Bariloche on a, on a ranch owned by, um, well, the family of Prince Benhart of the Netherlands. Um, it had been in their, in their family's hands throughout, well, from the 1870s on, huge cattle ranch just outside Bariloche. Um, and then they were waiting for a house at the other end of Lake Narrohapi, um, by Vija Angostura, though it's not that close to Vija Angostura, um, a house called Enelco to be finished for them, uh, which is the centerpiece of what is referred to as Adolf Hitler's Valley in the book. Um, and then they moved there in about 48, I think. Um, they also may well spent time, I've recently discovered it's not the right word, so I don't have complete proof on it yet. But I know they spent some time up in Obera, in the Misiones province of Argentina, um, where there was quite a substantial uh, Nazi presence as well. It seems they, they operated between Obera, Cordoba, Bariloche, and Buenos Aires. Um, they moved around, but not because they were being hunted. They moved around to go to meetings and everything else. Um, also, of course, by this stage, they have two children. Um, Ushi, who's come out of um, Germany to be with them, and another daughter whose name I do not know, um, who was born to Ava at the end of 1945. She's um, she's three months pregnant in the, in the bunker. Um, and for a while, they seem to leave, you know, lead quite a sort of normal bourgeois family life. Um, they're you know they're welcomed wherever they go and they're hidden wherever they go. Um, they are spotted. A number of reports go back to the FBI. Um, all of which were released, supposedly, but I don't believe all of them were released, um, and those that were released are heavily redacted. Um, and there are still thousands of documents referring to Hitler's presence in Argentina post-war, both in British, French, and American um, vaults that we'll probably never see. Some of them in the UK have been stamped for another 50 years recently as being top secret. Um, so when they do come out, it'll be 120 years after the end of the war, which won't help me much because I'll be dead. Um, I think it's it's when Bormann turns up that Hitler's world changes. Um, he's yeah really happy to see him, I suppose, and uh, he thinks that now you know there is an opportunity for a fourth Reich, maybe a fourth Reich in the sun, maybe you know something that starts in Argentina and spreads up from South America. But Bormann, as I was saying, pretty sure that the Nazi Party, as such, and Hitler, especially as Real news of the Holocaust and the atrocities that led to the deaths of 11 million civilians in World War II, not six, 11, uh, was coming out. And, you know, it's being shown to the Western world that it wasn't just Nazis in uniform who were complicit in this. It was the whole German people. And what Bormann did not want was any of that to sort of remain over Germany. His most important thing was rebuilding economically. 
And anyway, he had power. He had economic power. He also had quite a lot of political power. Because unlike in Iraq, um, when America, Britain and France took over um, their zones of occupation, and then Soviets did it in pretty much the same way, they needed people to run the locality. So they just let the Nazis take off their Hugo Boss uniforms, put on their Hugo Boss suits, and go back to work. By the way, Uh, very briefly, Hugo Boss, of course, now a major clothing manufacturer, and they were the manufacturers for the uh, very decorous Nazi uniforms. Yeah, designed and made the SS uniforms. Um, And yet there's one on every street corner of a major city. (laughs) That that, that is a fashion statement of a very different kind. Um, Yes, yes, very different. And go back, uh, Bormann and his differing view with that of Hitler. I think Bormann realizes that, you know, he's got the purse strings. Um, John J. McCloy, whose name we haven't brought up yet, but is a very close friend of Alan Dulles and will later sit on the... um, on the Warren Commission with him. John J. McCloy has now released all of the industrialists that were put in jail at Nuremberg. Um, he's just said, no, you can go back to business. You know, it's all, it's all over. We, you know, forget about it. Um, so German industry is beginning to come back to life. Um, it's beginning to come back to life in what later is referred to as the West German economic miracle. Um, I don't believe in miracles. The only way this happened was that the um, money that had been sent out of Germany at the end of World War II, started to flood back in. So they had capital available to themselves. And America ignored this deliberately because it needed a strong bulwark against the communist threat, which was now very real in 47, 48. Um, you know, the Berlin um, airdrops were having to happen because the Soviets stopped anybody having access to Berlin. And um, they needed a strong Germany. And they were getting a strong Germany. There was no economic miracle. The Germans didn't work harder than the Americans or the British or the French or anybody else. Um, they just had the capital available to them. Um, and one of the huge contracts, which I think went to um, Tuss and Krupp, the big steelmakers, was to make um, tank armor for the Korean War when that happened. Um, that was a major contract, rebuilt German steel building, um, or steelmaking rather. So it wasn't in anybody's interest to... Um, to stop the flood of capital back in, and especially as the flood of capital was going into companies that was owned or were owned, still partially owned in places by around 300 American organizations. So it was good for business, really good for business. To the side of this, there's Reinhard Galen, um, who is the intelligence officer on the East. In my opinion, um, humble as it may not be, Galen is responsible for a huge amount of the paranoia that the United States felt about the Soviet Union in the late 40s, early 50s. He almost builds the Cold War. They build the Cold War to effectively distract America from what's going on under their own noses, the rebuilding of West Germany. And um, Galen does it wonderfully. He does it with Dulles's, um, with Dulles's help. Um, I think Alan Dulles said... When asked about American cooperation with the Nazi intelligence chief, Dulles said he's on our side and that's all that matters. And Dulles at this point was head of the CIA and his brother and uh, former Sullivan and Cromwell law partner, John Foster Dulles, who helped to forge the cartels like I.G. Furbin, is Secretary of State under Eisenhower. So it's a formidable arrangement. And don't forget about their sister. Eleanor Lansing Dulles. She's working for the State Department in Germany. She's running the German desk for state. Wow. And uh, Lansing uh, is the name of their uncle, uh, Herbert Lansing, who was Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson and uh, had much, was basically the kingpin or one of the kingpins of the Paris Peace Conference after World War I, and that's where the Dulles brothers really began to become international players. Uh, once again, the economic miracle, or so we're told, that really was the repatriation of the Nazi flight capital. That's, I can see no other reason for it. The, um, the big plan that America had to rebuild Europe after World War II wasn't that big, and the sudden thrust of a new West Germany um, cannot be explained any other way. It simply cannot economically be explained any other way. Um, the money that had fled was coming back. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, the Reinhard Galen Organization. That is something with which uh, the listening audience, the veteran listeners anyway, are very familiar. Uh, you make a reference in Grey Wolf to them, uh, the MI6 view of them, British foreign intelligence or overseas intelligence, as the Gestapo boys. The popular portrayal of the Galen Organization is a bunch of uh, dedicated military intelligence. But they are, Dave. That's exactly oh, what they oh, are. Oh, they are, but they... military intelligence professionals who gave us unparalleled uh, insights into uh, Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And unparalleled. <laughs> well, they were unparalleled, but uh, how, how, insi- how insightful they were, I think, is a matter of debate. Tell us about the real nature of the Galen organization and how the word Odessa figures into that. <sighs> Okay, the real nature of the Galen organization is to keep American troops in West Germany at levels that will keep Soviet troops out of West Germany. And they do that by continually ramping up um, the idea that the Soviets are much more better equipped than um, we thought they were, much better trained. Um, and, of course, they're not. They really aren't. So they've got enough problems holding down East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia <coughs> as well all of which seems to have slipped Galen's mind. Um, uh, the, uh, but, and what, what Galen also does is he's in contact with Martin Bormann consistently. So he's telling him what he's feeding um, the Americans, um, to which I'm sure Bormann has a wry smile on his face as he chomps away at his sausage. Um, but they're also in touch because they have a network they have a network of spies, but they also have a, a proper network of political allies in West Germany. Bormann is back in control. He's the telex general again. Um, so he's able to maneuver and put people in positions of authority. Um, and he's just, well, I mean, I sound like I respect the man. And I respect his organizational powers amazingly. Because to do this from what has always been presented to me as a completely defeated um, Nazi Germany. And yet, it's not completely defeated. They may have lost militarily, but they haven't lost. Uh, the um, the Galen organization was described by uh, Colonel William Corson, who was the advisor for the church committee, as a front for Odessa Nazis. Uh, one of the ostensible aspects of the deal with the Galen organization was you won't use any SS officers or Gestapo people, will you? And Galen said, oh, of course not. Uh, that turned out to be, shall we say, less than accurate. Develop that well, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think the first time I came over to the United States, about, about 10 years ago, um, to come to a family wedding in L.A., or just outside LA. And there was still a piece of paper that you had to sign um, to come through immigration, which said that you had never been a member of the Nazi party. Now, I'm not making this up. Um, and that was in the 90s, or, you know, the late 90s. And yet, it was pretty damn clear. FDR said, we will not have these people working for us. And yet over 10,000 scientists were brought to America to work in Operation Paperclip, including Werner von Braun and his team, um, people who have been experts in um, chemical warfare, uh, which had been practiced at the death camps. Um, Hans Rudel actually helped design the A-10 tank buster. Um, so America had no problems working with Nazis, and so the game organization was fine. You know, they, they were their Nazis. They worked for them. Uh, what about, uh, you mentioned uh, Borman and his connections, not only with Galen and his Gestapo boys, as MI6 put it, but also some of the political leadership in the, quote, new, unquote, Germany. One of the mythologized figures in this country is Der Alter, Conrad Adenauer, who is presented as sort of a a wise, benevolent elder who steered Germany back into the right path. And uh, that, again, is uh, perhaps less than candid. Tell us about your altar. There are people working for the Adenauer government who were, you know, were senior. Um, Adolf Eichmann's boss is working for the Adenauer government, um, a man as much responsible for the Holocaust as anybody else. 
Um, the whole of the Galen organization is running West German intelligence, not just foreign intelligence, but West German intelligence as well. Interestingly enough, the BND, as it becomes known, um, if you want to join the BND post-war, you have to have a father who served in it. So it's the sons and daughters of these Nazi intelligence operatives who moved forward into the late 50s and early 60s as the new West German intelligence organization. Um, that, that, the more I talk about it, David, and the more I think about it, it's just we have been told a pack of lies about the whole thing. Um, and it just, well, more than, more than annoys me. <laughs> There is an American political comedian named Mort Saul, who actually was one of uh, Jim Garrison's investigators into the Kennedy assassination in New Orleans. Who, By the way, Garrison came across Nazis, both American and foreign, uh, down in New Orleans. And Mort Saul, in his autobiography, asked, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lie? And I think that is a a question that all of us need to ask, and I think something that Grey Wolf presents very directly, uh, uh, really is sort of a uh, confrontation of conscience under the circumstances. Uh, Hans Glubke, uh, what, do you, what can you tell uh, us about him? Yeah, but, uh, I'll have to just refer to a note here, but um, he's the former chief legal advisor in the Nazi office for Jewish affairs. Okay, so he's basically Eichmann's boss. Um, or he's the, the legal advisor to Eichmann. Um, he's able to play, he's placed in a position of power within Adenauer's government, again, by Galen. Um, and it enables them to have control of what is presented to the West or to the Allies as a democratic, non-Nazi, government that we should be supporting. And there's a lot of talk about denazification in Germany at the end of the war. It's a farce, if you have a look at it. These recently books have been written about it, um, which just show you that basically we just went, no, it's all right, you can stay in post, just, you know, change your uniform. Um, something which in Iraq we decided would not be the way ahead. Uh, so we got rid of the whole Ba'ath Party and um, the command structure in the Iraqi army. And look how well that did for us. Um, but Bormann, with Galen in place, and Galen is keeping America satisfied, um, despite the fact that the British are having a look at this and thinking, I can't believe how many Nazis are in this government. You know, and it's being published in the newspapers and things. It's, um, and yet in America, there's virtually no talk about it. Um, I mean, I think it was described as when Nazis came to America and were given you know, new names, new lives, whatever. It's described as a personal shine because they were washed whiter than white. Uh, Venner von Braun being, you know, the, one of the men who was washed whiter than white. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, you know, if you try and look back on it, I, I remember the Cold War a little bit. I remember the nuclear threat. Um, and maybe it was just too important to distract the world with that, distract the world with the fact that we could be destroyed in 10 minutes or whatever it was, um, and at the same time, just let these people get back to work. I mean, that's how they were making money. That's how everybody was making money. And it's back to this military-industrial complex theme of uh, both Kennedy and Eisenhower that they're the ones who actually rule us. They they are and and are really inextricably linked with uh, the people that we have spoken of. Uh, Talking about uh, specifically now, going back to the subject of Adolf Hitler and his post-war activities, uh, until I read Grey Wolf, I was not aware of the large number of press accounts. And I'm talking mainstream press, Walter Winchell, Drew Pearson, New York Times articles. Reuters, uh, the Associated Press, um, pieces published in the Times, pieces published in every regional newspaper in America, um, pieces published all over the world uh, that Hitler was alive and that Martin Bormann was alive. It really was very astounding. I mean, when someone in the year 2016 says, you know, Hitler escaped, you know, it, it is something that people can go, 
I'm sorry, you know, they think, boy, this person is off of their meds. And yet there was a great deal of publicity about this. I mean, you know, mainstream journalists, not tabloid journalism no, no, at all. No, completely. Um, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 it's just beyond me why this has all been ignored and poo-pooed by historians. Um, I, Simon would hate to hear me say this, but I think historians are very lazy people. Um, and that if somebody like um, Hugh Trevor Roper, who wrote The Last Phase of Adolf Hitler, um, and his account was completely accepted, and people now just go back and quote from Hugh Trevor Roper's book and basically say, yep, yeah, HDR got it right. Um, but he didn't get it right. He basically lied about who he got to interview. Um, he never interviewed Hannah Reich, Hitler's favorite female pilot. Um, and the guy who was the Luftwaffe adjutant in the bunker with um, Hitler, who he did interview, um, said that every time he read what Trevor Roper had written in the book, um, he laughed his head off at how stupid the man could be to, um, to have believed him. And I've never understood, ever since I started looking at this story, Dave, why we didn't put the FBI in, why we didn't put OSS, CIC, MI6, somebody from Scotland Yard. Why was the job of doing the forensic details of Adolf Hitler's death given to a former, pre a former um, professor of medieval history who had written one rather bad book, I think, on Thomas Cranmer? Um, I was very lucky. One of, my, uh, one of my best friends at school, his father was Professor Emeritus of Medieval History, and um, he had come across Trevor Roper a number of times, and... Um, his wife, Pat, who I had a great deal of time for, described him as an arrogant idiot. And she didn't usually use those words about fellow academics. Uh, there, in a previous interview with another author, uh, Trevor Roper was actually working with MI6 and was assigned, uh, it was called Operation Nursery, to write this basically fiction portrayed as history in order to lay to rest uh, the stories that by this time were factoring into the now glowing Cold War. Uh, Gerard, you have spoken about, we have spoken about not only the journalistic accounts, and again, I recommend uh, Gray Wolf, two members of the listening audience, uh, to see just how much, you know, names that are still relatively well known, Walter Winchell, Drew Pearson, people from the New York Times, AP, uh, talking about Hitler in Latin America. We've spoken about uh, documents that are still the class of, are still classified and or redacted and that are going to remain so for a long time. Uh, there is an American researcher named Peter Dale Scott who formulated a principle that the cover-up obviates the conspiracy. Uh, there are the old uh, Warner Brothers cartoons in this country where Bugs Bunny is in a haunted house and knocks on the door and says, eh, anybody in there? And the voice comes out, no, there's nobody in here. And I think that, you know, as ludicrous as that may seem, uh, one of the really brutally convincing aspects of your book is the extent to which there is an evident cover-up of that, in addition to the documents that are redacted, in addition to the journalistic accounts that have been eclipsed, uh, you and your team, uh, many decades after uh, this, these events and after the publication of your book, uh, began receiving death threats. I wondered if you would develop that for us. I've never actually been threatened um, personally. Um, two of my interviewees were in Argentina. Um, one was told that the Gestapo was still active. Um, this was a lady who was just about to show us pictures of um, Adolf Hitler in Argentina post-war. And another man who had um, been friends with Hitler's Batman post-war, um, a captain, merchant, uh, merchant navy captain um, and former senator in Argentina, a serious man um, in his 80s at that stage, was rung up and said that if he didn't stop talking to us, that they would burn his house down and kill his children. Um, since then, more recently, an intermediary between myself and um, an Argentine German who's lived in Britain for a very long time has had um, threats of physical violence made against him in writing um, uh, by a fascist operation in Germany. Um, but I don't want to go into details of that at the moment. Oh, um, no, I've never been threatened. I've covered enough stories and interviewed enough warlords and seen enough horror in my life um, 
to know that it's not usually the people who threaten you you want to worry about. Yeah, but the, the, the death threats were actually directed, not, not at you then, uh, but at some of the people. And at investigations, yeah, yeah, very much so. And, um, and the one and very vulnerable people as well. Yeah, the one woman was actually told the Gestapo still exists. Still active, yeah. Wow, that is uh, more than a little interesting. Um, where do you, where do you think this investigation is going to go? Where, because um, obviously we began with corporations, and then we have moved forward to politics in the Cold War. Uh, do you have plans to further develop uh, your investigation? Um, yes, is the answer to that. I mean, it, this has become something of almost an obsession, but not really an obsession. I mean, I'm, I'm just so angry about the fact that we've been lied to so much. And I am of that generation of journalists. I'm you know, 58 next year. Um, who was brought up to believe that you do the who, why, what, where, and when of a story. Uh, you don't do commentary. You don't do opinion pieces, op-ed stuff. Um, and I want to know the truth. So, yes, I'll be, um, I'll be doing it <laughs> and continuing to do it. There's a lot of information that we've gathered since the publication of Grey Wolf. Um, and I know, Dave, that you've seen the uh, outline for The Spider's Web, which is a book that Simon and I would really like to write if uh, we can get somebody to um, to bring it on board, um, because doing this isn't cheap, as you well know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, it's not made, not made any money out of this. It's cost me almost everything. Um, but we're also talking at the moment plans for a feature film to be based on it and uh, based on our research, um, and we'll see how that develops over the next 12 months. But, um, yeah, I'm not giving it up. Well, it, it, it's uh, remarkable. There, there was a press account uh, of Robert Bader, a very respected, now retired CIA officer, who endorsed your working hypothesis. He said yes, basically, that um, uh, he thought it was altogether possible that Hitler had escaped. Are you in a position to develop that for us? Well, I, I've um, I worked with Bob on hunting Hitler. Um, didn't get to know him very well because he was tended to be in America while I was on the ground in Spain and um, Argentina. Um, you know, if somebody like Bob Bear says that it's not nuts, it's probably not nuts. Yeah, exactly. He's a very mainstream commentator and, and himself a veteran intelligence officer as well. In the you, have to, you have to wonder why somebody like that, who um, you know, regularly appears on American television as a commentator on intelligence affairs, why would he involve himself in something like hunting Hitler if he thought that this was some conspiracy joke? Well, exactly. Uh, it, it, there, there, there is too much substance to what you have presented, I think, for an honest and objective observer to just wave away. That, of course, uh, we have so many uh, shills in our media and our academic establishment. It just it reminds me of uh, George Bernard Shaw's uh, perhaps unfair uh, characterization that those who can do and those who can't teach, uh, because we, an awful lot of our history is, uh, frankly, fiction. In the outline for Spider's Web, you talk about something that uh, gets almost no discussion. I've talked about it at some length, and that is uh, Werner Naumann and his attempted coup in the 50s. Uh, would you describe how that came to be and how it was frustrated? Well, it... I mean, I think we, we touched on this a little earlier when we talked about Hans Ulrich, Hans Ulrich Rudel, right. uh, who was quite central to this. Um, uh, Naumann is in, in, Buena, in Buenos Aires. He escapes through Denmark. Um, and he starts to put together a plan to basically go back to Germany and, and have the faithful follow him behind. Um at the time he's doing it, interestingly enough, um, Reuters reports from Nuremberg, um, the town where the, um, the trials of the war criminals happened, that local police have discovered a shipment of records uh, which originated in Argentina, which are recordings of Hitler speeches, um, which have been sent from Argentina into Germany, and they're not speeches Hitler's made before. Um, so there is a real attempt to... get something back from the, the destruction. I mean, Naman is, um, 
he's a mastermind in Buenos Aires behind a, a magazine, a Nazi magazine called The Vague, The Way. Um, and that shipped to America, uh, shipped into Germany from Argentina, has quite a large international following as well. Um, The, um, Nauman was actually, he was one of Goebbels' top aides, was he not? And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's very senior in the, um, in the propaganda ministry. He knows how to get a German, um, a German crowd going. Um, the British arrest him and his fellow conspirators, um, within days of their arrival back in Germany. Um, MI6 wouldn't have known all about it. Um, but they, the Brits detail evidence of an advanced plot. Um, instigated by an extensive Nazi network spreading from Dusseldorf to Cairo and including Madrid, Buenos Aires and Malmo in Sweden. Um, the plotters have close contacts with um, high government circles in Bonn um, and the British gets them first effectively and, uh, and arrest them and stop them it ever happening. Um, and I think it's I think it's Borman again. Yeah, Borman probably says to the Brits, you don't want this to happen and neither do I. So he betrays these um, dyed-in-the-wool um, swastika-carrying Nazis. I feel like he probably betrayed them to um, to the Brits and the Brits got to them, um, which meant that there was not going to be another Fourth Reich coming out of Germany. Um, At least and, not above ground. No, not above ground. But, I mean, the Fourth Reich, the Borman envisages is an economic forthright. It's something that you don't need to put your tanks on other people's lawns. You can just put economic pressure on them. Uh, one of the people who uh, figures in the outline for Spider's Web, uh, Adenauer or Der Alta, had been the Nazi collaborator uh, during the war, uh, the official accounts to the contrary notwithstanding. Uh, the real power behind the throne, the Eminence Glise was Hans Glubke, uh, who drew up the law for the protection of German blood and honor. Uh, Ludwig Erhard, who was the first finance minister of Germany and the uh, architect of the so-called uh, economic move, actually was part of the Kleine Arbeitskreis, an SS uh, entity that coordinated the activities of the SS with major industrial industrialists for the post-war uh, rejuvenation. One, one of the guys who designed the um, implementation of the Deutschmark after the Reichsmark fell apart. Um, and, you know, it's very central to the whole economic rebuilding of West Germany. Yeah, and, and then I guess it was Kurt Kiesinger, uh, who had worked for radio propaganda under Goebbels. Not Henry Kissinger, but Kurt Kiesinger, who succeeded Erhard. Uh, the point being that... Uh, the, uh, the, the Third Reich veterans continued in Germany. And, um, have you had any inquiries after, uh, hunting Hitler about further developing the story? Has there been any, uh, are there any indications that that particular inquiry is going to be moving forward or perhaps expanding into, uh, other, other media coverage? Um, I think you can safely say, yes, this story has not gone away and will not go away. Um, but I'm afraid at the moment it's a question of watching the space. Yeah, it, um, there is an awful lot there. One of the things that, uh, you, a comment you had in print, uh, in pursuant to some of the death threats that had been uh, directed against members of your team was that you had ruffled some very large feathers. Uh, do you think you will be able to continue to move forward? And has there been any, have the large feathers uh, made any more noise, so to speak? Um, no, currently, but it's not something I can talk about on air. Yes, oh, okay. there have been some, um, there has, has been some involvement of um, some very senior uh, right-wing people from Germany um, in trying to get my story stopped. Um and also, of course, you know, I get no help at all from CIA, FBI, um, or Mossad, interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's still a question of continuing to search. But people do come out of the woodwork. Um, not all of them can be relied on. Not all of them are, are correct witnesses. 
And, you know, the first time somebody asked me for money to do an interview, I just go, go away, not doing it. Never paid anybody for any interviews on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no intention of ever doing so in the future. But there are some interesting things that have come up recently. I know a lot more about the pilot who flew, um, who flew Hitler out um, in 45, um, who ends up in America under State Department uh, protection, pays his head tax in New York in the, in the 50s when he's released from a jail in Warsaw. Um, and I'm, I'm tracking down members of his family now in the States with a, with a very, very effective research colleague of mine. Um, so we shall see what happens there. And I think there will be more media coming up. Um, yeah. Looking forward to it, it does not surprise me. I and mean, people again will think, oh my gosh, this was a long time ago. Why would right, major right wing figures in Germany be making noise in your direction if all of this was really, oh my goodness, conspiracy theory? Um, we, we have been talking at length about Martin Bormann. There was, in the late 90s, uh, a supposed uh, proving that Bormann had died in the bunker, uh, or actually trying to escape in, in, in a tank in Berlin. And uh, I guess the supposed corpse, Paul Manning, in his text, uh, went into how the, uh, the death of Bormann was faked by Mueller concentration camp. Inmates had their dental work. Uh, a concentration camp inmate has his, who bore a resemblance to Borman, has his, had his dental work reworked as, so as to resemble Borman's. He was then killed and planted, uh, in the ruins of Berlin, and they conducted a DNA test, uh, and, uh, the German government did and said, yep, it's Borman. They then destroyed the corpse and the DNA, so it cannot. The DNA, the DNA test was, um, compared to an 83 year old female relative of Martin Bormann's allegedly, of which none of her ch- none of his children, who were still alive and were willing to give their DNA, had ever heard of. Ah. So that, you know, it's complete rubbish. They, they say, oh, no, we've done a DNA test, and it's definitely Martin Bormann. Well, it's not. They dug in the same place three times until they found his body in 72. And the DNA test is just a farce. Um, a friend of mine's father was chief reporter of the Daily Express in, in Europe for a long time and attended both the autopsy in 72, and in the latter part of his career was also there for the um, the DNA testing. And he'd been told by a number of friends of his working on German newspapers, German buddies of his, um, that the man in charge of the inquest in 72 had been a Nazi and had given him his Nazi party number and how senior he was and everything. And my friend's dad went and... Con- and um, and confronted him with this, the judge in the West German judiciary, um, who went very, very pale, <laughs> according to uh, my friend's dad, who told me the story. And the next day, the Daily Express splashed on their front page, liar. Really? Really? Yeah. And, uh, of course, now we cannot duplicate the DNA test because the, quote, course, unquote, has been destroyed. Uh, I would note that... Um, on my website, there is the Paul Manning text, uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile. A review- and one of my favorite journalists. I mean, really. I mean, the stuff that he did in World War II. Again, there's nothing conspiracy theory about um, about Paul Manning. Oh, he- Ladislas Farago, probably not quite as thorough in some ways, but also excellent research. Definitely. Um, Definitely. The, it, in, in the Manning, Manning's work had been instigated at the encouragement of Edward R. Murrow, who needs no introduction to older uh, members of the audience, and was underwritten by CBS News, but they would not go with the story. On page 205, there are banking records where Martin Borman wrote accounts on three major New York uh, retail banks that cleared through Deutsche Bank Buenos Aires in August of 1967 as something of a challenge to the audience to uh, doubting Thomas's or Thomasina's, perhaps. Uh, if you are skeptical, go down and try to open a bank account in the name of Martin Bormann. Get some fake ID. It's not that hard. And keep at it and see where that goes. I don't think you're going to be very successful. Uh, we are... Yeah. Any last thoughts? We're almost out of time, Gerard. No, it just, um, I have been a follower of um, the Spitfire list for, for some time, um, David, and I think it was you who originally turned me on to Paul Manning's book um, almost 10 years ago now. So uh, I'd just like to say thank you very much for having me on the program. Um, it's been fascinating. You're a man who um, knows more about my material than I do myself anymore. Um, I'm obviously going to have to go back and reread the book, um, which I will be doing shortly anyway. 
But um, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, speak to your listeners and to you. It's been a great pleasure and a privilege. Well, it is the privilege is mine, and I consider it an honor. So thank you so very much. This concludes for the record program number 915, interview number two with Gerard Williams, along with Simon Dunstan, the author of Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. This is being recorded on July 6th of the year 2016. For Gerard Williams, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.